Hello, my name is Omar Abosh, and I'm the Corporate Vice President of Industry Solutions at Microsoft. And I am Will I Am, entrepreneur, philanthropist, musician, and producer, and my mother's son, and this is Changemakers. There are a lot of people around the world driving change that impacts society. In this series, we'll share stories of transformation directly from the leaders themselves who made the change. We'll talk about their obstacles, their triumphs, their learnings, and how technology has accelerated their mission. According to the UN, more than 1.6 billion people around the world live in inadequate living conditions, and the pandemic only made it worse. Take in the UK, for example, where in the last 18 months, the number of people experiencing homelessness has almost doubled, with more than 130,000 households made homeless because of COVID-19. Omar, what do you think about that statistic? I mean, honestly, I'm horrified. Like, if you just actually pause and think about that, like, that is an enormous number of people. And I've got so many questions. Actually, I'd love to understand more about the problem. And when we get to our next guest, we'll get into this. But when we had the pandemic, first major lockdown in the UK, all the homeless people were given accommodation. And, and now here we are, and we have homeless people again. And so I don't get it, actually. It's really bad in Los Angeles, where I'm from. It's uh, under the freeways. It's on the street. It's right next to big businesses. It's saddening. But not just sad because what you see, it's how people have ignored it. Yeah, People walk past it. They've just accepted the fact that people are living in these conditions. Yeah. Well, let's learn a bit more. Cities around the world are searching for impactful ways to solve the problem. Some are building new shelters, others are experimenting with innovative housing developments, like tiny houses or pods. Those solutions take time to implement, but what about those who need help right now? Enter Change Please, a non-profit social enterprise that trains and employs those experiencing homelessness as baristas, giving them an opportunity to earn a living wage while connecting them with housing, a bank account, and medical support. It's the brainchild of founder and CEO, Jamal Azel, who has made it his mission to reduce homelessness, one cup of coffee at a time. And he's here with us today. Welcome, Jamal. Thank you for having me. Before starting Change Please, I understand that you were a commodities broker, which is a very different, <laughs> different world. What inspired you to shift gears and move focus to try and help people experiencing homelessness? Yeah, so looking at that disparity of some people earning a lot of money and doing really well, and then other people being made homeless at the same time that I was a commodity broker, really hit home for me and it kind of didn't sit well. Um, that wasn't enough for me to make a change. It kind of really happened on a trip in Vietnam, actually. Back in 2014, I was on this 18-hour bus journey from Ho Chi Minh City up through Vietnam, going up to uh, the center. And this American traveler jumped onto the bus, sat next to me, the only seat left on the bus. And um, I said, you know, this is what I do. This is my job. I'm not too happy with it. And he said, look, if you're not happy with your job and your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy on the world? How are your children going to remember you? What's this whole life thing been about? And, you know, without going too deep, we're born into these social constructs and society tells us what is the value system? What's the reason that we're in existence? And, you know, if we were born a thousand years earlier, or if we were born in a different era or a different time or a different city, 
then our value system would be completely different. For me, my parents were refugees and it was all about making money. Success was a what your assets were, what kind of your income was like. That was a barometer of your success. But delving deeper into why we exist for me was, was a really difficult thing to do. And I started to think, you know, what really transcends life and the reason that we're here? And I kept coming back to, you can't argue with helping people, with making a difference, improving somebody else's life. Whether we were born a thousand years earlier or in the Amazon rainforest, that really boiled down to me that that's one of the reasons why you can look back in your life and feel proud. And on that 18 hour bus journey, I remember thinking, God, if that bus crashed right there and then, who would really care? You know, perhaps my, my family, a few friends, my insurance broker might have to fill out a few forms and, and that would really be it. You know? So that was one of the most painful moments I've been through all my life up to the age of 29 at that point. And that was a, a really big pain point. And I think if you're going to be a change maker, most people that you speak to have that, that kind of um, moment where it kind of lifts them and projects them into trying to do something different. And that was my moment. And a few weeks later, I went to this silent tea house in Vietnam in a place called Hoi An. And it was run by these deaf and mute ladies that didn't have any, any other opportunity. They came together, created this beautiful space, both being deaf and mute. And uh, it just changed my outlook on life that you could do business and good at the same time. Um, and I had the idea for Change Please. And yeah, we're now in eight countries around the world. We are lifting the equivalent of 5% of the UK's rough sleeping population out of homelessness per year. We are tackling some of the hardest to reach people in cities like London, Paris, Manchester, Sydney. We're just about to do a huge project in Los Angeles. But it really is a huge opportunity to not just tackle the problem through the traditional way that governments and NGOs look at the problem of a housing first model, but really look at a job first model. 44% of people who want to work, who are homeless, want to work and can work. The other 56% either don't want to work and can't or want to work and can't. But our job is to find that 44% of people and give them a way out to stop them becoming the 56%. And it works. And it's really exciting to see how this can really scale. What's your biggest challenge? Biggest challenge is firstly about perception. So perception around the people that we support and what stereotypes are put on people who are homeless. Like you were saying, well, you know, people are desensitized when they walk past somebody in the streets who are homeless. It's almost like the humanity is stripped out of people looking at someone who's, who's in need, but society tells you that it's someone else's problem and you can keep walking. That perception of and labels put on someone who's homeless being a drug addict, an alcoholic, having mental health issues, perhaps is true for 20-30%, but not 100%. So we need to find that 44% and support them. What's the biggest difference between homelessness in London and homelessness in Los Angeles? Are they homeless for the same reasons? No, so it's all different. So in the UK, you have a lot more social nets to fall through before you get to the bottom. If I told you the main reasons for why people become homeless in the UK are um, domestic abuse, mm -hmm. uh, sexual abuse, someone's gone through a divorce, a bereavement, um, a small mental health challenge like an OCD, a PTSD if you're a military veteran, and they're the trauma trigger points which then lead that person into a, a negative spiral. And the longer that person stays out, the more entrenched they become. So it, it takes a lot for somebody to become homeless and rough sleeping in the UK. Whereas in the US, it's a completely different story. It's mostly financial. It's mostly circumstantial. So in the US, we just focus on women and children who are homeless and 10% of the time on military veterans. And for every one 
women we support, we support four other people in terms of the dependents, et cetera. So it's really interesting to see how we can provide a pivot point for somebody to lift themselves out of homelessness through their own kind of ability to work. And in the US, it, it, it does, really doesn't take much. It, it's just mostly circumstantial. And that's why if we're there providing an alternative with a job, then it really bounces them back into society much quicker. My aunt runs a homeless shelter down, downtown Los Angeles. And um, I lost one of my dear friends right when COVID started. He was homeless. But the type of homeless that didn't want help, you try to help them, try to get them cleaned up. They just want to go back into that comfort of the streets, which I found very, very confusing. How do you deal with folks that have made it their home to be homeless? It's a step-by-step approach. So in the UK, we've just launched three buses which take vital services straight to rough sleepers. And it's completely different to our normal model. Our normal model is about jobs and employment and housing and therapy. But this is a direct intervention on these iconic London buses where we have uh, access to a dentist, state-of-the-art dentist surgery, x-ray equipment with um, sonar cleaning, with access to a doctor. I mean, last week we had a lady who was homeless who came on and said, I've got a lump in my breast. Um, And we, we got her emergency support within, I think, 24 hours. Um, we've got showers, haircuts. You can open a bank account on the bus. Wow. Um, it's like, this has never been done before. The World Economic Forum just did a whole um, social media piece on it. And it's, it's incredibly innovative. We launched it with the mayor's office in London. And the reason why that works is you're not expecting to change that person's life overnight, mm-hmm. but you're providing one bit of love at a time. Mm-hmm. And that love builds trust that's and nice, belief. That's a nice... Uh... It's a nice sentence, one bit of love at a time. Yeah, and it, it just, something as simple as a warm shower. And then the next time they come and get a haircut, the next time they have their teeth looked at, and then to the point where what we're doing is watching that person all the way through to see if they are the 44% or the 56%. And then we give them a chance at the right time to come back in. But what's happened to that person that you mentioned is they've systematically lost trust in society where the thing that they, they feel most comfortable with is what they understand and what they're in control of. And that's being out on the streets. So by building up trust with that person through these vital services, they're coming into our family and then we can then direct them into areas that we feel um, are best suited for them. So that's a project that we've rolled out with HSBC, with Colgate, some other partners in, in we're going to be launching into different cities um, as sponsors. And, and it's really exciting to kind of see how that can go into cities like LA and New York and Charlotte's actually going to be one of the first cities we roll it out into. Talk to us a bit about the pandemic and how that disrupted your model and how you've adjusted to that. The pandemic was, in a way, horrific um, for us initially because our model revolves around business and trade. You know, we supply coffee to airlines, to gyms, to train networks, universities. So our business dropped by 95%. And just to say, when I say business, we're a not-for-profit. We yeah, explain, explain that uh, just a little bit what the focus of, of the business is. Yeah, so most people think of on a spectrum of, of organizations. One side is traditional for-profit business. The other side extreme is charity. We sit in the middle. So what we do is we do good, we do charity through trade, through business. So essentially we have coffee shops, wholesale contracts where all through the trade process of um, selling coffee, we are generating jobs, we provide housing, we provide bank accounts um, through business. And, and 
For us, whether you're an airline or whether you're buying from one of our coffee shops, 100% of the revenue that we generate from selling that product goes towards paying somebody a living wage or providing housing. And actually, just a quick segue, the most important part of what we offer, and when we first started, we thought, let's give somebody a job in a house and that's going to be enough and that's great. But what really works is the therapy, is the mental health therapy support. If you're not tackling that pain of why that person became homeless, then, then you're always going to stay in that cycle. And no matter how much you pay somebody in a job or how quickly you give that person housing, it doesn't matter. We, we learned that the hard way and people tended to go back into that cycle after about three months mm-hmm. and they were looking to go back to the streets or they were looking to go somewhere else. But when you start tackling that mental health and that trauma piece, it unlocks everything and it all starts to change. So actually the fourth bus we're about to do is a mental health bus where we've got pods on there and you, you, you talk about your trauma and you come off the streets and you really start to break down that, that, that pain inside you. And then that's, everything else starts to open out. And the way governments tackle the problem is through, oh, let's just put somebody in the house. Let's just, they're not doing that. But even if they did, that person is still isolated. They're not connected to society. They still have that pain. And it's all you're doing is putting a sticking plaster over our social problems and shifting it from homelessness to loneliness or homelessness to poverty. And we really think that this all starts with mental health therapy and then the jobs and the housing really allow this to kind of work. So all of that is paid for by somebody buying our coffee with all the profits get then going to wow. support people. I like the take on giving people dignity by turning them into an entrepreneur. It's different from when you hand somebody something and you give them the ability to, you know, lead themselves out of it by discipline, bringing the best out of them by performing and, and exchange and being part of trade so they could change themselves as well. I love, I love that. So many people have told us actually they've got so used to sitting out on the streets and just putting their hand out and people coming asking people to, to give them something. And then as soon as you change the social dynamic for that person to stand behind a coffee bar, in our case, with a safe space, and people are now coming to them, asking them for something with a flat white, a cappuccino, a latte, every single drink that they serve on that day is slightly making them increase their self-worth and their belief that they have something to give back. And three months down the line, they're completely different people. Yeah. Um, Amazing. And it's just that rebuilding trust back into society part that works. And it is, it's all about dignity. That word is absolutely spot on in it. So just to go back to the question, Omar, in terms of the um, pandemic. So we were in a really sticky situation, but coming out on the back of that, we're now probably three or four times the size we were previously. Wow, um, congrats. Thank you. And, and all of that is opportunities that have come out of the, the pandemic. For example, you know, there's so many hotels now in uh, the UK that are going into liquidation because of lack of tourism. There's a lot of office spaces that people aren't going back to offices and we're converting hotels and offices into accommodation and uh, providing that to, to, to people who are homeless. And it's all a commercial model that is attractive to investors. I want to go with, uh, with where you're talking, Jamal, about your 44%. Because mm. you said that there, those can be helped. And you said that, that you collect a lot of data along the way. So each little bit of love you give them, you're capturing data about these folks. And so I'd love to understand actually two things. One is how does the data help you in taking care of folks that you're suffering mm-hmm. homelessness? Uh, and also, you mentioned trust. They've lost their trust in society. Now, actually, when we talk about data and society, we often get to the trust issue very quickly, which is like, who do we trust to capture our data? Mm-hmm. So how, how do you handle that with regards to the homeless people? The first part is, let's take in those buses as an, as an example. You have all of these people who are out on the streets, um, lost in society, lost to government, 
lost to the healthcare services, especially in, in the UK, we have the NHS. So to try and provide services for a, gr- a, a group of people that you don't know what they need or what they're suffering from is almost impossible. So what we're doing is tracking that person's healthcare needs. We do, as soon as they come on the bus, we do their blood pressure, we do their glucose, we look at their basic vitals, and we do full assessments of that individual that we feed back into the NHS. And then you can start tailoring services through that data collection to try and tackle first and foremost their healthcare needs. For example, what one stat that we were shocked about was in London, 775 people died on the streets in 2019, and of which 17% of those were, were from suicides. If you're then able to start tracking what the steps are before that to try and provide the, the vital services to them ahead of time, data is the only real way that you can do that. It's not, it can't be anecdotal. And the trust part is absolutely vital. You know, for somebody to come and come on one of our buses or into our program, you need to build up that relationship with them. You have to make them feel as though there isn't an ulterior motive. And with us, what's interesting is that the funding that we have isn't conditional. We are selling a product, we're selling coffee, and that gives us the profit to then support people. So we can support someone longer than they would normally have support. And that level of authenticity, sincerity, integrity is felt by the person that we're seeing. So yeah, data is absolutely vital. And then looking at how that person moves on through the system, where they start to fall down, what is it that's making them fall down? So, you know, we had a guy recently who he he moved over from the US to the UK with his family. And unfortunately, he lost his his wife and his daughter in an accident, um, became severely depressed. He ended up saving a lady from drowning in the Thames. And he won the George Award for Bravery. He won the high commendation from Prince Charles at Buckingham Palace that wasn't given to anybody in 43 years. And he was lost to society. But every year in October, he remembers the death of his wife and his daughter. And that takes him back on a cycle of drinking and so on and so forth. So tracking the, the journeys and the challenges and the needs and the, of all these people that we're help, helping is absolutely vital. Otherwise, it just, you know, stories and, and, and actually when we say data, it's not, You think of data as numbers and just statistics, but capturing qualitative data and stories and emotions and feelings is as important as the numbers. And that's something that really puts humanity into the data, which we weren't doing originally. And now we're doing that. It really changes how we connect and feel about the people we're supporting. Can I ask you a question? In your your mind, the work that you're doing is awesome. The people that you're trying to help is great. In your head, what does it look like if you were doing it at the grandest scale? What would $100 billion, how many people would it help? Mm. So there's two parts to that question. One is um, the non-change piece perspective. We have to change perceptions around homelessness to start with. We have to not stereotype everybody as being drug addicts, mental health issues. And, and what's great about what we do is you, you might see somebody outside a train station and then six months later, three months later, they're serving you coffee. That humanizes that person and that has a ripple effect the next time you see someone else who's homeless. That perception has to change because every time you stop or you speak to somebody or you ask them their story or you give them somebody a smile and you try and humanize them in your own mind, that has a huge effect on how they feel about themselves or, or, or the trajectory that they could go in. So perception is one thing. From our side as, as change please, um, a key part is, is growth. We have an 82% success rate in the people we help. Mm-hmm opening more sites, more retail units, which A, has a commercial return for an investor, but also provides direct job employment opportunities 
is a huge opportunity for us to open in cities all over the US, in more cities in, in Paris, in Sydney, in London. And we do that through jobs. Non-selfish, change please perspective, looking at supply chains. And I know Microsoft are really great at this. There's so many social businesses out there and there's social traders in the UK, there's Social Enterprise UK that has a directory of social businesses. Can you look at your supply chain and change where you buy your water, your travel services, and just by buying a product you would have purchased anyway, will automatically support people throughout your supply chain. And if one airline, all they're doing is changing their coffee, it will reduce homelessness for women and children by 75% if we reinvest wow. the profits in that city. That's unbelievable. And it's supply chain. We're not asking to spend more. The coffee would taste as good. So think about that for just coffee. Think about that for all the other supply products. that they've You've explained it beautifully, Jamal. So you're talking about scaling. And yeah. so actually talk about the app. So the app yeah. that you're working on to actually connect communities to their homeless population so that they can help as well. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so that's so interesting because you walk past people in the streets and you, most people want to do good. They want to help, but they're worried that person's going to spend it on drugs and alcohol. So what we're doing at the moment is building an app which um, you can immediately donate a product or a service or you can even help upskill that person with a course in graphic design or just buy somebody a sandwich or pay for a hostel for a night. Right. And you, you get a voucher that you're able to give to that person, which then they can use for a particular service as opposed to money that stops people from giving money in the first instance because they feel they might spend it on drugs and alcohol. So you're giving something that they feel that they might need um, in, a, in a voucher system where you can go to a hostel with this voucher that someone just walks past and gives to that person. Or, you know, ask that person in the communication, what do you really want to come? What's your previous skills? We've got people working for us now that are, are our accountants do our social media, they do our graphic design. They have so many skills that are just covered over by lack of self-belief. And let's find out what those people's skills are, reskill them and give them an opportunity to come back into society. That's wonderful. And, and um, just as we close, you told us an amazingly moving story about how you got into this, but what keeps you going? This is going to sound so cheesy. But Your heart. Yeah. It, it's, it's <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, I'll, start, I'll just say, you see that transformation in people. When you come and see the people's, that people that we support, whether it's on the bus, whether it's them now working for large multinational companies, going back into society, that's what makes, makes me... You know going. what's crazy? What you just said right now and your focus and the things that you've you know, committed to, there's people like you that want to go out there and make change. And imagine if you had a hundred billion dollars, what change in the amount of people that you would help because your heart just wants to do that. At the core, the answer, the direct answer to Omar, like what keeps you going? Because you're humble. It's like, I just want to want to help people. That's just how I'm made. That's just how I'm designed. That that's what equates wealth. So so I mean, Will, we just need to get Jamal introduced to some of these billionaire philanthropists and they can help him on, on the journey. Yeah, and I think just as a, a yeah. last point, Big um, time. <laughs> the, the, the part that I really intrigues me is we have to make it work financially for people. The days of charity are coming not to an end, but they're, 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 at the beginning of COVID, the amount of people donating to charities went through the roof. Three or four months later, when people started realizing that their um, salaries or their jobs were hit and furlough schemes and all that kind of stuff, Charity donations dropped, but people supporting social businesses went through the roof because they were able to still do good, but buy a product they would have purchased anyway. 
So if we can find a model, and I think social enterprise and social business is that model, which means that a billionaire still keeps a billion in their bank account, but they use it for good and have, have that money returned back to them. Or if you're going to be an entrepreneur, be a social entrepreneur. If you're going to set up a business and think about your you know, environmental and social piece. Amazingly inspiring, Jamal. Thank you so much for being with us. You are for sure a change maker. Thank you. So, Will, after uh, chatting to Jamal, what are you left with? What, what are your impressions? Jamal needs never-ending budget for his work. And I, I, I could see why there's a big movement of anti-billionaire. Because he should be a hundred billionaire. Because you know what he would do if he had that capital. You know the people that he would help if he had that capital. That's what I'm left with. You've seen some of the billionaires put their money into funds that actually are being used to help the world, but you know maybe some of them aren't. No, no, no. We know the ones that aren't. <laughs> that, that's the conversation. And what what did he think about when he started talking about you know helping each person one little step at a time with a little bit of love and capturing data along the way, um, yeah. and then sharing that data with the National Health Service, for example, here in the UK. And so, what did you think? And you know, and the, using the app to help people like give a gift but and know what that gift is rather than worrying that the money gets misspent yeah a little bit of love a step at a time i love that i like the vision how how that data is protected it all depends on how the data is protected if it's used for only good reasons to only serve and help it's awesome because I don't understand why there's homelessness. I can't, I can't wrap my head around, wrap my head around it. Until the day that it's like, I can't believe at one point in time people were homeless. Well, I mean, talk about a people-centric use of technology. I mean, I couldn't think of many that would be uh, more focused on solving for human beings. And he kind of, I think, gave us a very good readout of how people got homeless, although clearly it's different between different countries. And, you know, he spoke about the UK and the US in particular there's so many entry points financial emotional drug addiction abuse yeah i mean when you think about that complexity and that vast array of causes of homelessness are you left after listening to jamal more hopeful that we can solve homelessness solving it is education dedication um financing investment and love and when I think of politics, the last word that comes to mind is love. I mean, it's true that he, um, in many ways, he's performing the functions of what a government maybe ought to be doing. But the bit that I left hopeful on is that actually he had a science behind the 44%. Those people that actually, when you get to the root cause of their trauma that set them off and, and got them into that situation, and then give them those little bits of love along the way, and hopefully get them in to get a job as a barista, as part of the nonprofit uh, company. Then that does help solve the problem, at least for part of the population. Yeah. Then there's that fifty, the uh, over fifty percent of folks, yeah. and that's a lot of people. Yeah. So I think that leaves us still needing governments to to be more mindful, more thoughtful, and I, I guess they can learn a lot from Jamal and his team. All right. See you next time.